from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Don't be too pedantic. Keep an open mind. Do your best to critically analyze data. Don't be fooled by studies. And there's many times there are biases that explain the results. So critically read the literature. Keep an open mind. And uh, always think about the future and what the next big discovery is going to be. This week, we are very fortunate to welcome Dr. Schreiber to rounds. Dr. Schreiber is a professor of surgery at Oregon Health and Science University in the Division of Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery. Dr. Schreiber received his medical degree from Case Western and completed both his residency training and Trauma Critical Care Fellowship at the University of Washington in Seattle. Marty is a colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve and has been deployed three times, and Dr. Schreiber has previously shared with me that, in fact, a lot of his experiences are colored by his involvement in the military and his military experiences overseas. Dr. Schreiber runs a very active trauma research lab, which investigates a host of topics that span the spectrum of clinical, basic science, as well as animal research. He's authored over 300 peer-reviewed papers, and many of these are considered landmarks in the fields of trauma and critical care, from the series of studies put out by the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, to Prompt, Proper, and many, many more. Marty is the recipient of an insane number of DOD, NIH, and NHLBI research grants, and much of the focus of these investigations have centered around core or fundamental aspects of trauma care, specifically with regards to early trauma resuscitation. These include hemorrhage control techniques, blood transfusion therapies, novel methods of resuscitation, as well as the major focus for today's rounds, the use of tranexamic acid or TXA following injury. Side note, Dr. Schreiber and I were both inducted as fellows of the American College of Critical Care Medicine last year, and at more recent surgical meetings, we've had the opportunity to casually discuss the results of his recently accepted paper to JAMA, which is a randomized controlled trial of pre-hospital TXA administration in patients with traumatic brain injury. So Dr. Schreiber, welcome to Rounds. I am so excited that we're finally able to sit down and catch up. It's kind of amazing that it took a global pandemic before we could get our schedules coordinated. But just to jump right in, you know, a lot of work that you've done has had a significant impact on how we practice modern trauma and critical care. And yesterday was National Stop the Bleed Day. And in the past, I know that you've done quite a bit of work in terms of the use of hemostatic dressings and the development of these dressings, as well as the use of tourniquets. When you think back over your career, how have you seen things evolve or change from your time in the military to present day with regards to these not so novel anymore hemorrhage control techniques? Well, I'll I'll take it back a step further. During my training, uh, we really focused on uh, resuscitation. This was in the early and uh, mid-90s. We were highly focused on resuscitation, mostly crystalloid resuscitation. We started transfusion with red cells. After six units, we were taught to start giving plasma. Platelets were sort of an afterthought. Cryo was even more of an afterthought. And I think a huge event was the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where uh, there's just this overwhelming experience with bleeding patients. And whereas I was taught that tourniquets cause complications, they cause amputations, compartment syndrome, all these types of things. What we really found out 
in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is that the tourniquets save lives and actually are associated with decreased complications. So this was part of a movement to really focus on early stopping the bleed. So what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan around the period of time around 2006, 2007, maybe a little bit earlier, we were using tourniquets earlier. Our resuscitations weren't as advanced at that point in time. But we learned that the number one most important thing in the care of bleeding trauma patients is to stop the bleeding by whatever method is possible. And that tourniquets are very effective. They stop lives or they have very low complications rates. We sort of realized that standard gauze, you know, had been used for 10,000 years. Like, you know, there's pictures on Greek vases of people putting gauze on, on the warriors in, in Greek times. And we started to realize, well, maybe we could do something better. So there was this massive evolution and development of numerous uh, hemostatic dressings with all kinds of different strategies. I'd say some worked, some didn't. Some were actually harmful and had to be removed. But that sort of technology continues to advance. And we, we really are focused now on early hemorrhage control. And I think Stop the Bleed evolved out of that type of thinking because when we had a massive event, like at the Boston Marathon and numerous people bleeding, it was really brought to the attention of the public that we didn't have effective methods. We had developed those methods in military times and, and those were uh, translated very effectively. So I think that, you know, we started focusing on hemorrhage control and then we started thinking, well, people are bleeding whole blood, kind of simple ideas. People are bleeding whole blood and maybe what we need to do is replace whole blood. So there's a series of studies that started showing retrospectively that higher ratios had better outcomes. Prospective studies prompt more or less showed the same. And then we moved on to proper, which was a one-to-one-to-one plasma to platelet to red cell versus one-to-one-to-two. And there's, there's a suggestion of a benefit in that trial as well. And finally, after all that, we said, okay, well, we're taking the whole blood apart. We're making it into components. Let's just keep the whole blood. And, you know, again, tremendous experience in theater. But now that product is fresh whole blood. Fresh whole blood's a different story. It comes out of one person, goes into another. It's the best resuscitation fluid on the planet, undoubtedly. Everything that's bleeding is being replaced. That product is not available in the United States. We're primarily using liquid cold stored whole blood. That's been stored. It's been processed. It may have been leukodepleted, which reduces uh, platelet activity as well as number. But it's still probably the best we've got when you compare it to crystalloids and, and components. So this sort of evolution of thinking where we went away from resuscitation as the primary goal to resuscitation may be bad by causing hypothermia, clots, acidosis, et cetera, and focus on uh, hemorrhage control. And then we're moving back towards whole blood. The whole evolution is fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've seen the, you know, this go back and forth throughout my career completely. And, and the funny thing about it is, you know, early thinking about resuscitation, going back hundreds of years, I mean, the first thing people thought of was whole blood. You know, right. there's records of whole blood transfusions in the 1700s. There were whole blood transfusions in the Civil War. Of course, it was used quite aggressively, World War I, World War II. So we're sort of just going back to the future, more or less, which is pretty common. Yeah, absolutely agree. What's old is new again. And this swinging of the pendulum back and forth is so commonly seen in the fields of medicine and surgery. And a great example of this that we haven't talked about is the concept of permissive hypotension 
or hypotensive resuscitation, which was advocated for by Cannon almost 60 years before the 1994 Bickel and Maddox paper in NEJM. Now, in addition to hemostatic dressings, tourniquets, early hemorrhage control, and the use of whole blood, and I'm super excited that we recently rolled out our whole blood program here at Harbor UCLA, TXA and other medications like tranexamic acid, uh, for example, epsilon aminoproic acid, these have been around since the 1960s, but seem to be getting more and more attention as of late. And when you say getting back to the future, this is a medication that has gained variable traction since the publication of the CRASH-2 trial in The Lancet back in 2010. And when I say variable, I kind of just look around at my partners and our practice patterns. And among our group of eight trauma surgeons here at Harbor, uh, although we've protocolized so much of our early trauma care, there really seems to be some ongoing disagreements regarding the benefits, timing, as well as dose of TXA in potentially bleeding patients. So my question to you, Marty, is, What are your thoughts on TXA as this magic bullet, and how are you guys using it over at OHSU? Yeah, so this is another really interesting story, right? So uh, everybody wants to reach out for the magic drug that stops the bleeding and makes everybody better. You know, 10 years ago or so, it was factor seven. You know, all the the rave was factor seven. All the papers at AAST were on factor seven. We kind of got over that. Factor seven is expensive, may have some efficacy, but not really proven to be extremely effective. So we got away from that. TXA is different. As you say, it's been around for decades. It's actually, it's an extremely well-studied drug. A meta-analysis of thousands of patients, mostly in cardiac surgery, some orthopedic spine surgery, shows that it reduces blood loss, decreases transfusions, has no effect on mortality and doesn't affect thromboembolic complications. So that's a huge study, meta-analysis of, of numerous uh, randomized trials, not in trauma. CRASH-2 came out. Interestingly, I was in Afghanistan. I was the Joint Theater Trauma System Director. And uh, CRASH-2 came out, and I got a call from the Pentagon, and uh, they said, well, here's this, this study. It shows that it saves lives. Why aren't you giving it to our soldiers? And I said, well, sir, couple reasons. I have some issues with the study. I'm not convinced that it's uh, as effective as you may think. And second of all, you have not authorized it for my use. So I don't have it to give to anybody. (laughs) But I I think Uh, that uh, CRASH-2 seems to show a benefit. Numerous problems with the study, 20,000 patient study, mostly third world countries, not the type of medicine that we're used to practicing. There's about a 1.6% improvement in survival, only significant because of the number of patients. Had the study been done in the United States, utilizing our regulations, it would have probably been stopped after about 1,000 patients for futility, and it would have been a negative study. Right. But there is that 1.6% benefit. Again, no increased risk of complications. The data sheet was one page. Again, it's not the medicine that we practice. It's a different kind of medicine, different kind of patients. Only about half the patients even got a blood transfusion in that trial. So it wasn't even necessarily studying bleeding patients. So a lot of questions on that. And the sort of inclusion criteria whereby TXA was given pretty much at the discretion of the EM physician who, based on the history, the presentation, they thought, eh, this patient's at risk for bleeding. So yeah, yeah great point. It's, it was actually called randomization by indecision. It, it, it says it. It <laughs> yeah. says it. And what it means is that- That's right. Yeah. So if the doctor thought the patient needed a TXA, they gave it. 
if the doctor didn't think the patient needed to say they didn't give it. But if they threw up their hands and said, well, I'm not sure, well, then they get randomized. So that's an interesting randomization protocol. Agreed. Now, in terms of the military experience, the MATTERS trial was eventually published, and there were certainly a few methodologic limitations in terms of its retrospective study design. But this study also showed an improvement in survival. Yeah, it, it's interesting because our colleagues, uh, that study was done at Bastion, which is in southern Afghanistan. It's a hospital, it was a combat support hospital ran, run by the British. And they were using TXA like water. On their helicopter, they had a, a physician and they were flying the TXA to the patient in the field and giving it in the field. They were giving it in the hospital. And their retrospective analysis after correcting for differences in uh, injury severity showed a benefit. So I think what happened was between the crash two, a little bit questionable matters, you know, that was enough evidence to kind of push us toward starting to use it. And I kind of reluctantly started using it because I wasn't convinced at that point in time. But we did start to use it at OHSU. We were using it whenever the patient was uh, placed in a massive transfusion protocol as part of our massive transfusion protocol. I think all of the data on TXA really suggested it works better the earlier it's given. And the later it's given, even after three hours, mortality starts to increase. Yeah, as well as all the thromboembolic complications like myocardial infarction, stroke, or venous thromboembolism. Right. So, so we became interested in using it pre-hospital. Through the Resuscitation Outcome Consortium, which was a, a large consortium funded by the DOD, the NIH, and numerous federal organizations, both the United States and Canada, we had a consortium across the United States and Canada, and we decided to do a randomized trial, randomizing uh, traumatic brain injury patients uh, with GCS 3 to 12 in the field to one of three arms. The first arm was a two gram TXA bolus. So we kind of started thinking, well, you know, this one gram, one gram therapy that everybody uses, it comes from those elective studies that I mentioned earlier. That's where the dose comes from. It doesn't come from trauma. Right. So we're talking more along the lines of cardiac and perhaps OB surgery. OB, spine, orthopedics, you know, surgeries that go on for a long time and there's, you know, there's ongoing injuring and bleeding. Right. Right. So in trauma, you've got a single event, you're bleeding. So the concept is stop the bleed now. So to me, it makes no sense to give a drug over eight hours when you need to stop. You're going to die by three if you keep bleeding. So instead of giving one gram, one gram and delaying the therapy and maybe giving an adequate uh, startup therapy, we decided to uh, randomize one group to two grams. And so that was two grams in the field. This was across the United States and Canada. Blinded kits were in ambulances. And if the patient met the entry criteria, they opened the kit and gave the drug. So it was either two grams up front and then a placebo over eight hours in the hospital one gram in the field, one gram over eight hours in the hospital, sort of the typical dosing, and then placebo, placebo. And uh, so we completed that study. It's coming out in JAMA. Uh, Fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So it was, it's accepted. I got, I'll be honest with you, the, the primary outcome of the study was neurologic outcome at six months, comparing all patients who got TXA to, to placebo. And that did not reach statistical significance. And JAMA really makes you sort of focus on the primary outcome. But, but the data is all in there. It kind of comes in a paragraph at the end of the results. But if you look at patients with intracranial hemorrhage, 
the population of interest. So, you know, a lot of patients in the study didn't actually have intracranial hemorrhage. Right. They had low GCS for other reasons. If you look at the patients with, with a GCS between 3 and 12 and intracranial hemorrhage on CT, the survival is significantly better in the 2-gram placebo, in the 2-gram group. So mortality was 18% in the 2-gram group and about 25-26% in the 1-gram, one 1-gram one group and the placebo group. So absolutely no difference in survival between 1-gram, one 1-gram one and placebo. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting. And I, I've never really understood the reason why we give the one gram and then another gram over eight hours. I mean, I haven't looked at our data personally, but I can imagine that a lot of folks that get that first gram in the emergency room, once they get triaged either to the operating room or the ICU more commonly, they're not going to get that dose. And so if someone is bleeding and we think that there is a problem with bleeding early and most patients die within the first three hours, why not get this into them early and upfront? Now, you mentioned that in this subgroup of patients that actually had a confirmed intracranial hemorrhage, there was an improvement in mortality. I know that previous studies that have looked at things like, for example, platelets or DDAVP for hemorrhage progression radiographically have looked at exactly that. So you look at the initial scan, patient gets a drug or intervention, then you repeat the scan to see, is there a change maybe in the volume of bleeding? Was that something that was looked at in the study? Mm -hmm. And was there anything significant there? Yeah. So really good question. So I have to give you a little background to answer that question. So with the mortality of 18% versus 25, 26%, it turns out that almost all the difference was in the first 10 hours, which we found to be really interesting. For sure. But when you do that, when that happens, you get a survival bias. Okay. So in the two gram group, if you think about it, more patients are surviving to get the second CT that may show a bigger bleed, but they survived with, you know, and got a bigger bleed. But the ones that were getting a bigger bleed in the other groups were dying. So it's almost like you have to live to get a bigger bleed. So you have a survival bias. So despite that bias, there was no difference in the increase in the size of the hemorrhage. Now, the other thing that was really interesting is that all the patients had tags on arrival to the hospital not a single bit of difference between the tags and all the groups. So you could have gotten two grams in the field versus placebo. The tags were identical. And not only were they identical, but when we looked at fiber analysis physiology between shutdown physiologic and hyperfiber analysis and broke those down in the groups, no difference between the groups. So we, we have a couple of interesting findings. We did not show a decrease in the increase in the size of the bleed, and there was no difference in the tag. So this started to lead us a little bit down a different pathway and say, well, maybe the TXA has nothing to do with bleeding. Right. And we're sort of hypothesizing that what kills these patients in the first 10 hours is, is cerebral edema and herniation. What's happening is that the TXA is actually through a plasmid mechanism sealing the endothelium and preventing cerebral edema. Yeah, and that's a really interesting hypothesis. And I know that several folks have tried to put forward some mechanism or theory as to why TXA would result in improved survival because it doesn't look like it's related to its role as an antifibrinolytic. And so just to take a step back in terms of mechanism of action, maybe you could explain to our listeners how TXA actually works. And then at the same time, 
why is it that patients who are getting an antifibrinolytic aren't getting more clots or thromboembolic complications? You would think that if clot wasn't breaking down, they might be at risk for these complications. Well, I think, uh, you know, so TXA is a lysine analog that binds, preventing the breakdown of fibrin into the fibrin split products and D-dimers. So, so what it does is it prevents the breakdown of established clots. So by doing that, what you might think is, well, if you have clots, they're not being physiologically broken down as they should be, could that increase the risk of DVT? But again, you know, massive uh, meta-analysis, no increased risk, our study our study was actually interesting. There was no difference in DVT or PE between the two gram group and the placebo group. It was about 9% in those two groups. The one gram, one group, gram group actually had a 4% mm. risk of DVT PE. But, you know, sometimes if you study enough things, you know, something's going to come up significant, but no difference between two grams and placebo. But, you know, so I don't think that, you know, TXA hypothetically based on its mechanism is not making the patient hypercoagulable. It's just preventing breakdown of clot. So that may not cause, you know, more DVTs and PEs. And again, you know, in our study, no difference in the tag at all. Even in the LY30, the amount of lysis at 30 minutes, there was no difference there. Yeah. So it seems like there seems to be some sort of, as you alluded to, anti-inflammatory mechanism, maybe that we don't completely understand that may be responsible for some of the improvements that we're seeing in outcomes like survival or uh, neurologic outcomes. Yeah, I think that, you know, there, there are a couple of uh, potential mechanisms. One is anti-inflammatory, but the other one is through protecting the endothelial barrier. And we're sort of focused on that right now. We're wanting to study that further because it really doesn't seem to be the bleeding that's being affected in our study. You know, that could be different in a trauma study, you know. So one of the things we want to do is study that mechanism. The other thing we're dying to do is a two-gram hemorrhage study. That would be great. A two-gram yeah, field absolutely. hemorrhage Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you that the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care, uh, which establishes the guidelines for the initial management of wounded warriors, two nights ago voted to give all patients, both head injuries and bleeding patients, in the field two grams. So one of the other avenues of investigation now that we're looking at is, would an IM injection of TXA be equally effective? So think about it. Every warrior carries an auto injector filled with two grams of TXA. If they're injured and bleeding, they can pop a little two grams right into themselves. Yeah, that would be really interesting to see the, yeah. the lack of a need for an IV, an auto injector that they carry on them. I mean, that really seems to be the way we should be going. Yeah. And, um, you know, since we talked and I first heard about this study, we've been giving two grams up front to pretty much all of our trauma patients as they come in and our pharmacists in the ER have been great about that. I think one of the things about TXA is as more and more data has come out with the use of TAG and Rotem and and the identification of hyperfibrinolytic patients uh, using the LY30 and physiologic shutdown. Some folks are saying that maybe we should be more selective. And for those centers that do have used the TAG to kind of determine yay or nay for TXA. Yeah, I'm totally against that idea. Awesome. <laughs> I'll tell you why. I'll, yeah. tell you, I'll, give you, I'll give you two good reasons. Great. Number one, it doesn't appear to have any effect on the TAG as I mentioned. Right. 
And number two, to get the LY30, you're going to have to wait about 30, 40 minutes. So you've already got the time to get to the hospital. Then you've got the time to get that tag. You're looking at intrinsically waiting at least an hour or more before you can even give the drug. Right. Again, we know it's most effective the early it's giving. I would not delay the drug. There's not a speck of data that suggests that using a TXA-guided mechanism to make that decision benefits the patient, but we know waiting hurts the patient. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. I think that's probably one of the key take-home points here, and uh, I can't wait to actually have my colleagues listen to this episode and others in the trauma community. So it's always nice, you know, when there's evidence that support your own biases and personal opinions. Right. But I mean, obviously there's not evidence for everything, right? So you make the best decision. So, so the interesting about this, you know, you talk about biases, anything you do could have biases, right? So if somebody does a study Mm -hmm. that looks at using the tag to dose the TXA, that study is automatically biased because they waited to give the drug. I agree 100%. And the risk-benefit ratio of the drug probably evolves over time with the greatest benefit early. The longer you wait, the benefit goes down, the risk goes up. So you're biasing the study toward more risk. So I think it's a really bad idea. You know, Obviously, both neither CRASH-2 nor MATTERS, which is the reasons that we give TXA, use TEGS. So I think this is an example of smart people getting a little too smart. (laughs) We never do that. And then um, in terms of your study and CRASH-3, which again was uh, another TXA study, this time in TBI patients and a very broad or wide spectrum of TBI patients, what are the major differences for the listeners to understand between CRASH-3 and your trial? So CRASH-3 is another kind of CRASH-2 style, 17,000 patient deal, again, done in, uh, you know, third world countries. I imagine that the care of a head injury patient is probably a little bit different in a place like Afghanistan or Pakistan than it is in the United States. That is also true that they studied, again, either placebo or one gram, one gram. They did not study a two-gram dose. Their primary outcome was a mortality outcome, which actually was negative. Mm -hmm. But when they did their sub-analysis, they found a survival benefit in the mild to moderate patients, which to me is very interesting because I don't think a mild brain injury patient should die. Again, it's a different treatment area. Right. So I wonder if the results are even applicable. Our study is different because the survival benefit we saw in patients with intracranial hemorrhage was all in across the board, you know, all GCS three to 12. Yeah. And so your study did not include patients with mild TBI, and these were all moderate and severely injured head patients. Correct. Correct. Exactly right. And the reason why is what I just said is, you know, a mild head injury patient shouldn't die. So it's not a good population to study because you can't show a benefit. One of the questions that I did have after going through uh, the manuscript in terms of other pharmacologic interventions, so we look at patients that got different doses of TXA or placebo. When it comes to the ICU care in that study, do we know what was happening during the critical care illness phase of things, especially with regards to things like use of EVDs or ICP monitors or other pharmacologic adjuncts like beta blockers in the post-injury phase? 
So I think from that standpoint, to be honest with you, we, we did have sort of standard management protocols that involved things like head of bed up 30 degrees, early feeding. We did not dictate the thromboprophylaxis. Uh, we did not dictate other therapies. So for the most part, it was a pragmatic study yeah. in that if, you know, whatever the institution was doing to treat brain injury that was special to an institution, they could do that. But we, you know, we kind of, it was sort of modern standard of care was what we, sure. we, we dictated and we did not exclude any other, any other treatments. So we didn't really collect any additional data on separate treatments, but I would put it sort of in the category of a pragmatic study, meaning that the only thing that you're really truly varying is the intervention right? and the care of the patient is otherwise the same. Great. So Dr. Schreiber, when it comes to your paper, any other thoughts or final take-home points? Well, I'll tell you, it's a little frustrating to publish a paper in JAMA because they're so <laughs> rigorous about, you know, focusing on the primary outcome. And their argument is, it's a clean argument and a rigorous argument. They feel that when you do a study like this, you power. So the whole thing about the primary outcome is how do you power the study? So you choose a primary outcome and you say, okay, I think the difference between the groups will be so large and there'll be this much variation in the difference. And based on the difference in the group and the variation, you come up with a, a power number. So in their rigorous kind of statistical method, they feel that the primary outcome is the only one that you're really powered to truly answer the question. So everything else they're looking at is secondary outcomes or exploratory outcomes. Mm -hmm. Now, all of the outcomes that I'm talking about were pre-stated. I mean, we did state that we would look at all of these things, specifically a page of intracranial hemorrhage. We would look at, you know, all of these. These were pre-specified outcomes. Right. But, you know, other journals, like, for instance, Lancet, that published the CRASH-3 paper, it looks much more like a positive study. So if that right. study was published in JAMA, it would look much more like a negative study. So I think, you know, just from a scholastic standpoint, people should think about, you know, what they read in the journal is largely determined by how rigorous the journal is with reference to statistics and outcomes, et cetera. Yeah. So we actually plan to turn around and publish another paper in Lancet and look specifically at the secondary outcome of intracranial hemorrhage. And the other thing that's really interesting, and we haven't talked about it yet, is so about 56% of our patients actually had an intracranial hemorrhage. That, mean, that meant there was 44% patients that didn't. Mm -hmm. In general, those were not significantly injured patients, they went home early. So a really important question comes up, did those patients suffer from getting TXA? And as far as we can tell, we look at that population, it doesn't seem like they did any worse. There was one signal to mention in the two gram group, and this is for all the patients, it's not significant if you look at either subpopulation, but there was a higher seizure rate in the patients who got two grams pre-hospital, and that seizure rate was about 5% versus 2% in the other groups, did having a seizure result in a bad outcome, and it didn't seem to affect any clinical outcome. So we did find a higher seizure rate. That is something to think about. The higher the dose of TXA, especially in brain injury patients, the greater the risk. Right. And that is a known side effect or complication of tranexamic acid. Right. You know, one of your questions might have been, well, why didn't you pump it up to four grams mm -hmm. or five grams? And, and I think that will probably be on the up. That'll end up being the limiting factor in, in the dosing. And among patients that had a seizure, are these early seizures that are happening in the pre-hospital setting? And did these patients get an AED? So, well, let me just take one step back. So how do we define a seizure, right? It, it's not that easy. Well, they made a funny movement. 
Well, they made a funny movement and the medic treated it. Okay. So the medic thought it was enough like a seizure. So they treated it. Okay. So not confirmed via EEG or cerebell or brain stethoscope. This is purely a clinical diagnosis in the yes. field. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And most of them happened early. So we did treat them as if they had a seizure and, and they did get seizure prophylaxis as well. So I think that that is a consideration is the seizure risk. I think it's, you know, it's really interesting if anybody wants to embark on a study like this, it's incredibly important. The assumptions you make in a study like this are just so important in terms of power and what your outcomes are going to be and whether it's a positive or a negative trial. I can't overemphasize that. You know, I didn't get it. You know, when I first started doing this, I'm like, I didn't get it. Why are we sitting around the table talking about the primary (laughs) outcome so much? And now I understand everything emanates from the primary outcome. You know, the number of patients, the likelihood of seeing a positive study and all those things are determined by it. Yeah. But, you know, we have a massive data set here. We have uh, all the clinical data. We have all the scans on all these patients. We have all their MRIs and we have all the inflammatory mediators, endothelial markers. We have an enormous library of data and we're going to be publishing. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Henceforth, the post hoc analyses and let the fishing expeditions begin. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Dr. Schreiber, I know you are such a busy man and trauma surgeon, academician, and so I don't want to hold you too long. But are there any final thoughts, words or clinical pearls? that you'd like to leave for our listeners. And this can be anything from your most recent study to research or professional development. Well, let me, let me just impart a little wisdom, I'll say, Fantastic. Uh, you know, after, a long, uh, after a long career. Number one, don't be too pedantic. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you think is absolutely right today may not be right tomorrow. <laughs> And I'll start with the crystalloids. Uh, I trained at Harborview, uh, University of Washington, Seattle. And I had a T-shirt, and it had all these equations on it for oxygen consumption, oxygen delivery, cardiac output. Oh, I love it. And, and all these geeky equations. And it said, Harborview, where the answer is always fluid. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we had ICUs oh, full of these, great. you know, Michelin people and organ failure. And we stopped giving the fluid, and all that went away. So don't be too pedantic. Yeah. Keep an open mind. Do your best to critically analyze data. Don't be fooled by studies. And there's many times there are biases that explain the results. So critically read the literature. Keep an open mind. And uh, always think about the future and what the next big discovery is going to be. So right now, you know, TXA is big. I think it, it actually is going to be a real thing if we give the right dose early. But you know what? Maybe we'll do a two gram TXA trial and find no benefit. I don't know. We'll see. I'm not too attached to anything yeah. at this point in my career. And if Peter Reed gets involved, maybe there'll be like a 21 gram TXA bolus or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, P- T- Peter's been pretty quiet. So, yeah. uh, you know, he just made a video on how to do a trach I saw, on a COVID I, patient. You know, I just, uh, the episode we released today was specifically talking about that article. And he's got this crazy jury rigged, you know, hood. And I don't even know what they're wearing on their heads, but there's like a papper and then like a towel. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, it's classic. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> classic. <laughs> awesome. Marty. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Schreiber, for right. joining us. Really, really appreciate this. I think this is going to be a fantastic episode for everyone.
All right, Dennis, it took a long time to get it done. It but, did. Uh, I'm glad we finally did it. I enjoyed talking to you. And that brings us to the end of another round. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks again to Dr. Schreiber for taking time out of his busy schedule to join us. If you like what you're hearing, please let us know. You can rate, subscribe, and comment at iTunes or wherever you download your podcast from. Until next time, keep reading, stay safe, please take care of one another, and we will talk soon.